0: let 's pray before we begin, Father God, we thank you for this series on Peter uh, for the man Peter, even as we began the series with an overview of who Peter was, for uh, just our ability to identify with Peter, maybe more so than than most other uh, people in Scripture, and that you held him forth in your gospel and in your New Testament um, really uh, as a as a key supporting actor mentioned. Uh, only second to Jesus himself. And so we really identify with Peter. And so I thank you for the Apostle Peter and uh, everything that he taught us through the Gospels by his action and, and what he is teaching us now later in his life through his uh, letter, First Peter. And for uh, the hope that it contains and for how dense it is with just truth about you and truth about our relationship to you. And so, Lord, as we continue this morning, I just pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and open our hearts to what you would teach us about hope, about faith, and about love uh, this morning through Peter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start out with a quick overview and some clarification of last week. Um, one thing about Peter, as I mentioned, it is absolutely jam-packed with doctrine, and there's no way... And I, and I mentioned at the beginning how there was one pastor who preached for two years on it and another guy who preached for 16 years on First Peter. Can you imagine? But now as I dig deeper and deeper into it, I understand why. And so I am up here with this constant tension that I am skipping over like seven weeks of sermons to get through each chapter in just a couple of sermons. And so I want to just do some clarification on last week and, and some review to make sure that the, the depth of what Peter is saying sort of sinks in. And last week we looked at... The initial theme of Peter that carries on in some form through the whole letter and it sort of forms the basis for his message, okay? This is the theme of Peter. Present circumstances are temporary, okay? He will say later on in his letter that his body is a tent, right? So present circumstances are temporary and what we have through Jesus is imperishable. And he uses that word five or six times. He loves that word imperishable. This is temporary. What we have in Jesus is imperishable. Christian joy, faith, hope, and love all get their roots and grow from that reality. Okay, Christian hope, faith, and love all get their roots and they grow up from the reality that what we have through Jesus is imperishable. And flowing out of the fountainhead... you remember I talked about the the source that is God's grace is like a fountainhead? And flowing out of that source we have this unshakable hope apart from the specific specific circumstances of life. This is all review of last week, okay? And whether our situation gets better or whether our situation gets worse, our hope stays the same. And so a Christian does not place their joy in the prospect that their circumstances will get better. That's not what we have future hope in, that things are going to somehow get better. And that, as I said, may sound a bit discouraging for us because that's what we tend to put our hope in. We, We tend to hope that, oh, things are bad now, but they'll get better. But that's not where Christian hope lies. But as we learn not to place our hope in the fragile reality of our present circumstances, which can always change, there's a deeper truth that we uncover is that the foundation of our joy also cannot be diminished if our circumstances change. And so you say, well, that might be depressing to say, well, if, you know, if I can't hope in things getting better, that's kind of sad. Yeah, but what's good is If your hope is somewhere else, then your hope is unshakable even if things get worse. That's the good side of it, right? And so we don't get caught up and we don't have to ride the high and low tides of life. We don't have to be tossed up and down depending on how circumstances go. I got a job, yay, I lost my job, despair, you know? My spouse is kind and attentive, oh, I love my marriage. My spouse is grumpy and selfish, I hate my marriage. Right? We don't get tossed around like that if we get our, our hope off of our circumstances and onto our imperishable inheritance, which is preserved for us, unstained and unsullied, and in our salvation, which is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and that our faith is guarded by the power of God so that not only do we have this imperishable inheritance which is glory forever, but God by His power is guarding us so we get there. So you don't even have the chance to say, oh yeah, I get it, there's this great heaven, but I'm not going to reach it. You know, I'm still doubtful, I'm going to get there. You're not even allowed to not have hope in that because Peter says God guards your faith so that you get there. He backs us into a corner saying, you have to be joyful and hopeful. You have no alternative. Because it's imperishable and it's guarded. And so put your hope there, Peter says. And as a side effect, our personal relationship with God is not also rising and falling based on our opinion of whether we're getting the blessings we feel we should in this life. Right? Oh, life is hard. God must be angry with me. Or God's being mean. Oh, life is great. God's awesome. Right? And so if we get our hope firm on something steady, as Peter says here, then as Christians, we don't have to rise and fall with our circumstances because these are temporary things. The foundation of our joy is the grace of God and the security of our inheritance and the power of God to bring us to that inheritance without fail. And now a clarification that I want to make on last week. That doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't grieve over the circumstances of our life. And as I reflected, I thought maybe I didn't get this across clearly. Okay, so... You might have gone away from last week saying, I'm just supposed to be joyful all the time, and if I'm not joyful, then somehow I'm a bad Christian, and that's not what I was trying to say. It doesn't mean that we can't grieve over the circumstances of our life. There's a time for grief and a time for sorrow. But the very bottom, the foundation of our joy is the certainty of God's grace in our inheritance. That's the ballast, if you want to think about it this way, that's the ballast at the bottom of the ship that keeps it upright, okay? So that our ship can never be completely blown over by a storm, But we can still experience a sorrow over circumstances, a sorrow that doesn't give way to despair. We can grieve our circumstances without capsizing the ship, in other words. There is a joy, and Peter calls it an inexpressible joy, or perhaps I would say an unexplainable joy, at the bottom of our temporary trials that never lets our grief over our circumstances become despair. Are you with me? You see what Peter's trying to say there about there's being this joy at the bottom that doesn't let us despair. But Job wept over his circumstances. Joseph begged his brothers to spare his life in the pit. Moses grieved over the sin of Israel. David mourned the illness of his son. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus and in the garden facing his own death. Not Peter nor I am saying that there's never sorrow or never grief over circumstances. But what we are saying, what Peter is saying is that the Christian hope doesn't stop at our circumstances. It goes Deeper than that. So in the end, Job refuses to curse God. And in the end, he says, though he slay me, I will trust him. And despite his imprisonment and slavery, Joseph acknowledges, how can I sin against my God? And when God took David's son, he amazed... and and David's son finally died from his illness, David amazed his servants by ceasing his mourning and looking forward to his future reunion with his son. And Jesus was obedient to the Father, knowing the outcome of the present trials of his life. And so this is the hope that Peter sets out, establishing it unapologetically on the foundation of God's grace, that we we have a hope that is the ballast of our ship, that while we may grieve present circumstances and it's good to grieve our present circumstances, we never fall into despair. Or Paul says in Thessalonians, that we grieve but not as unbelievers grieve, those without hope, right? He says, may we not grieve as others do who have no hope because we grieve in a different way. And so there's a difference with Christian grief. That's just a quick overview of last week, and I just wanted to clarify that and sort of put that back in our memory and in our minds that the message of Peter is that there is an inexpressible, inexplicable joy at the, bo- at the bottom of our trials our present circumstances. And now Peter moves from this faith resulting in hope to it resulting in a sincere love for each other, a love from the heart that is pure. And I'm looking at 1 Peter 1, 22 through to chapter 2, 3. And we're mainly, we probably won't get into chapter 2, just looking at the time. So much here. Let's look at God's word. 1 Peter 1, 21. Through him you now trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere, mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been born anew, not from perishable, but from, Peter's favorite word, imperishable seed, through the living and enduring, which is another way of saying imperishable, word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. This is temporary, Peter is saying. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. So get rid of all envy and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, all evil, sorry, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salvation if you have experienced the Lord's kindness. That is the word of the Lord. Now in the center of this new paragraph that Peter writes, after elaborating on the salvation that we have and elaborating on the security and the hope that we have in, Peter centers now on how we're to act towards each other in love. This is something Jesus taught, right? And I, I'm sure I don't have to belabor this to us, that love is the central pillar of Christianity. Jesus taught it in John 13:34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And about a hundred other places we could go to, right? I'm not going to take the time to go to a hundred other places where we have this instruction to love. But Peter remembers what Jesus taught. Peter knows what ultimately flows out of the grace of God. And Peter calls us to love one another. It's what Jesus said. It's what John says. It's what the Apostle Paul says. It's repeated through Scripture that love is central to our Christian experience. And so what does Peter have to say about this love? And what's its connection to this imperishable, enduring word, right? Because he's back there with the imperishable and the enduring juxtaposed to the grass that withers and the flower that dies is temporary. The love that Peter refers to here, the actual word used is agapeo, which as you know, many of you might know is the Greek for agape, and that's the unique word of love that's used for Christian love, right? It's it's the love of choice. It's the love of the will. It's not a love of emotion. It's not a love of affection. It's not a love of physical attraction, right? It's the highest level of love. It's the love of a will of choosing love to place love on a chosen person. That's agapeo. And it is love directed towards our Christian brothers and sisters. Peter says, show a sincere mutual love. Or literally, it says there, a brotherly love. Literally, the Greek word there used in that first part of the sentence is Philadelphia. Okay, not the city. Philadelphia. What's it known as? The city of brotherly love. Right, because Philadelphia is that Greek word. That's the word that's there, Philadelphia. Brother love or reciprocal affection, mutual love. And so Peter double loads his emphasis on love, basically saying, so have a tender mutual love for each other and sincerely uh, or fervently, earnestly, agape, choose to love the brethren. You will, you, you'll exercise will, your love in both manners. And then he drops this adjective on the end of it. He, sa- he says, love earnestly. Love earnestly. And that's going to be important. We're going to get to that in a little bit. So a sincere, mutual, tender-hearted love combined with an earnest or fervent love of our will, our choosing to love each other. That's what Peter says here in the center of this paragraph. So what is this love then? And when do we get this love? Who has it? And if you back up a couple of verses, Peter says in 121, he says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. That's the gospel, right? Peter says... So if you're a believer in God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory, you who are believers so that your faith and hope are in God. And then he says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have this sincere love for your brothers, the agape love, one another earnestly, deeply from the heart. And so the readers that Peter expects to be capable of this type of love are able to to express this type of love for each other Because they're believers. Because they're obeying the truth that's revealed in Jesus. They've accepted his work of salvation. They've accepted the work that Jesus did on the cross as personal for each of them as individual. And by that obedience to the gospel, Peter says you've purified yourself. Right? You have purified yourself. In the past, you purified yourself by believing and you are continuing to purify yourself by being obedient to this word that is the enduring word of God. And so the believer's acceptance of Christ and the consequence that Jesus' life is now within them, this new spiritual life is constantly prompting the believers to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge, and that is to grow more Christ-like in all forms of purity. And so Peter says the people who have this love one for another are believers. Right? I'm not trying to belabor the point, but I'm just trying to show you what Peter's writing here. He's saying it's believers that have this love for one another. It's the church. So Peter says that this love he's asking for is possible by obeying the truth that is the gospel and by being purified or by being born again, which is the phrase that he uses in verse 23. In that moment of of purging and of obedience and new birth, we're given this new capacity to love. This agape love is possible. The ability to choose to love our brothers and sisters, unlike we were able to love before. And so Paul says it. if you were to go to the Apostle Paul... Just so you know, Peter's not out on a limb here. Paul says it's something like this about this Christian reality of what's new about being a Christian. He says in Romans 5, 5, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see that? God's love has been poured into us. That's what Peter's talking about. For you who are believers and have become obedient to the truth and have been purified by it. Paul says it's God's love poured into us. People capable of this love have the love of God in them. Peter also alludes to the same thing Paul is talking about. If you were to go beyond that sentence to verse 23, he says, saying, We're all born again. How are we born again? Not from perishable, but from imperishable seed. When a thing is born from the seed of something, what nature does it take on? It takes on the nature of the thing that the seed is from, right? Wheat grows up from wheat seed. Corn grows up from corn seed, right? Isaac grows up taking on my nature, poor Isaac. Right? <laughs> and Peter here is saying, You are born again, not from perishable seed, not from something in this world, but you are born again from imperishable seed. You're born again by the Spirit of God. And so you take on the nature of God. So Peter is saying the same thing as Paul, and he's saying the same thing as he said a couple of sentences earlier. He's trying to get across to us that the people who have this agape love poured into our hearts, as Paul puts it, or born from the Spirit of God, as Peter says, imperishable seed. In other words, for a believer, the capacity for this love is now natural for us. It's poured into us. We're born into it in our new life. It's now the new normal, having become Christians, born into God's nature, having the love of God poured into us. It's our new normal that we love one another and that we're able to choose to love one another. That's the new normal Christian life, is love, is what Peter is saying here many different ways. But it's a supernatural love Paul says it this way in Thessalonians. He says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. This is really cool. We don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You can't say it any more clearly that Peter and Paul and Jesus and James, if I was to go to James, would say the same thing. If you are born again, you have this love in you. That is what it means to be Christian. I don't even have to tell you that but I just did. (laughs) But Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians, I don't even have to write to you. I don't have to teach you this because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. If you have this transformational experience of being born again, then you know what love is because God has put it in you. And so there's now in the believer a resonant Holy Spirit that is teaching us to love one another with a love that God has poured into our hearts. And in 1 John, John says that that love is so much a part of our new birth, in fact, that not to have love would cause us to doubt maybe our status as children of God. John, the Apostle John just says it in 1 John 3.10, he says, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John says the same thing. John says... Love is so much a part of being a Christian that if you can't find love in your heart, then you really don't try to work it up on your own power. Go to God and figure it out. Ask God by His Holy Spirit to come into your heart and teach you this love. Because John says it's evident who are children of God. The ones who love their brothers are and the ones who don't love their brothers aren't. So Christian, if you don't have this love or you're struggling to find it, Go back to God and ask Him. Get yourself right with God because if that love is missing for brothers and sisters around you, then there is something broken between you and God. That's a sign that your relationship with God is not right. If you cannot find love and forgiveness and grace and mercy, I could use lots of adjectives here you know, to talk about love. If there's no forgiveness, if there's no grace, if there's no mercy, or as Peter says in chapter 2, if there is bitterness and envy and slander malice then you haven't experienced the kindness of god right he says in verse 2 3 if you have experienced the lord's kindness if you really have this salvation so brothers and sisters love is core to our christian normal living it's not optional it's the fruit of salvation so where do we express this supernatural love then verse 22 says love one another He says, sincere love of the brothers. And so we've been given this new love and we've been given a new family where we exercise that love. We exercise the love in the family of God. It's sincere brother and sister love, mutual love for one another. The supernatural love is expressed towards a new family. And if we want to know more about love like this, we can turn to our favorite apostle of love, which is John. He talks about love a lot, and he'll be happy to elaborate on this for us. And so first of all, quoting Jesus, John says in his gospel, John thirteen thirty four thirty five. 35, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, for you have love for one another. Jesus said it. We express this love to each other. Just love one another. And then John teaches that lesson again in his later letter, 1 John 3, 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or sisters, okay, for the siblings. It's not meant to be just guys. But feel free to love the guys too. So does that mean that we need to die for each other? Does that mean that we... Are like secret service agents that, you know, that he's saying here we have to throw ourselves in front of a bullet or push someone out in front of a speeding train, you know, give up our lives for each other. Is that what he's talking about? Is that what John says? Love is expressed as laying down our lives for the brothers. I mean, my life isn't that exciting. I don't know if yours is, but, but that's not what he means. If you just keep reading, John explains what that laying down life love looks like. 1 John 3, 17 to 18, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's laying down your life, right? When you choose your life over someone else's life, that's not laying down your life. When you choose someone else's life over your life, that's taking your life and and saying, I'm going to lay my life down for a little while, right? Downstairs, the Sunday school teachers are laying down their life for a little while. They're choosing to set their life aside right now on Sunday morning. They could be in here, you know, worshiping with everybody else, sitting back, taking it easy. But they said, you know, I'm going to lay down my life for a little while because I love the parents and I love the children in this church, right? Friday night at Shepherd's Table, right, the people who are cooking and the people who are serving and the people who are washing dishes and cleaning up they're saying, you know what, I'm going to lay my Friday night life down for a while so that I can give my life to someone else who needs it. That's laying down your life. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Or you could say, yeah, I, I could have a new snowmobile. I could have that. That would be good for my life. I could build my life up by having more stuff. Or I could not have a new snowmobile and someone else could get life through my generosity who needs it. Maybe they make a mortgage payment or maybe they get some chemotherapy done, right? Whatever they need. That's choosing to lay down your life for the life of another. You see what I'm saying there? That's what John is saying. So in other words, how can you see a brother or sister in need and not help them? How could anyone say they have God's love if they overlook the day-to-day needs of brothers and sisters right in their midst? And John says, you can't claim one and not do the other. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth, and by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. So now John says it in the positive way. If you do have this love, it reassures you that you have this kindness from God and that you are filled with the Holy Spirit because you have that supernatural love that lets you choose to lay down your life for someone else's life. And so it's our love for each other that draws people to us, right? Right? Let me say something that's perhaps controversial. It is more important that we demonstrate love towards one another even than we show love towards the unsaved world. All the commands here, all the emphasis so far that we've looked at, it's been to love each other, for the church to love the church, right? Or I could say it this way, it's more important that we love each other first and get that love right than we try to love the world without first loving each other properly, right? God expects us to use this sur- supernatural love to love each other, then our love will be demonstrated to the world and will draw them. John 15, 20, 12 to 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's Phileos again, Philadelphia. So how are we to love then? What are the characteristics of this love? What sets it apart? This is another favorite word of Peter's. First Peter 1 22, he says, You have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly or fervently. The word there is ectinos. It's actually a pretty cool word, ectinos. Ectinos, and he uses it again in 1 Peter 4 8. He says, Above all, in chapter 4, he says, Above all, keep fervent. In your love for one another because love covers over a multitude of sins peter says a proper earnest fervent love washes over offenses people can hold grudges people can become bitter people can take offense but love covers over that sin and god calls us to love that fervently god says or peter says have a fervent love for one another because love covers over sin covers over offenses And the word "ectinos" that he uses there, the word literally means to stretch to the limit. It's used, it's like a biological word. It's used of a muscle. It was used often with horses, if you were to look at other Greek literature, to stretch to the furthest point of a muscle's capacity. In other words, to go all out. Have you ever seen those uh, world's strongest man competitions? It's always the guys with the huge beer guts, Right? They don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're not all, you know, they have the huge beer guts and they're just like big bulky guys and they lift up like 800 pound concrete balls and stuff. You ever seen those on ESPN? Sometimes they have them or they like pull trains with their teeth and do weird stuff like that, right? But you see those guys when they're lifting those balls and the veins are like popping out of their neck and they're bulging out of their forehead and it looks like they're going to like literally just blow something up when they're doing this. And this is what the word ectinos means. It means stretched to the furthest point of capacity to reach the limit of love. And so when it's used for love it's to stretch your love to the absolute limit, to cover over as far as you can stretch and cover, to cover whatever offense exists. And Peter knows about this. It was Peter who asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And, Pe- and Jesus answered Peter and he said, 70 times Seven. So Peter got a first-hand lesson in this. How far is my love supposed to stretch, Jesus? Am I supposed to forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, that's not stretching. Stretching is 70 times seven, or literally just keep on forgiving over and over and over again. And that's what Peter's thinking back to this lesson that he got from Jesus. And he says, have a fervent love for one another because it covers over a multitude of sins. Keep stretching that love out as far as you can. Now, sadly, I have trouble forgiving seven times. I have trouble forgiving even three times. I can forgive once really easily. Second time, that's not so hard either. Third time, you're an idiot. Like, how many times do I have to keep forgiving you for this? Right? You see, that's the limit of my stretching, three times. Isn't that sad? It's funny, ironic, haha, if you don't laugh, you cry, right? But it's sad. Isn't that most of us? I start struggling at three times. Peter was willing to go seven and Jesus says 70 times seven. He says this fervent love, this ectinous love is to stretch farther than you can imagine to the very limit, the limit of love. That's the love we're called to. And if you can't even forgive once, well, I don't even know what to say about that. You know, but I know what the Bible says. 70 times seven. And the same word is used in Luke twenty-two forty-four. Listen to how ectinous is used here. This is Jesus in the garden praying before going to the cross. And he says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. He was praying ectinos, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Jesus was so stretched and extended emotionally in prayer that he was literally oozing blood from his flesh. That is ectinose stretching. That is ectinos love. That we are to be so loving and so stretched in our love that it extends us to our limit for the sake of love. So what does that love look like in our church then? How do we apply it? We've got to get to application here soon, right? This supernatural love, God's own love poured into us, fervent love that covers sin and stretches out, choosing to love one another at, at our limits. Okay, that's what we're talking about. This isn't a sentimental love, okay? You're sort of getting that impression from Peter, right? From the words he's using, right? When he talks about sincere and fervent and earnest and ectenos, Right? This is not thank you cards. This is not handshakes at the door. This is not hugs, although hugs are great at the front door. You know, those are nice and those are needed things, but they are not the fervent love that Peter is speaking about to these Christians who are suffering. He's writing this letter to Christians who are suffering. And so he's not writing Hallmark cards to them. He's talking about a love that goes beyond kindness. Don't forget that context. These are Christians under fire. This isn't about affection. It's about the love that God of God, and the love of God is the love that made the ultimate sacrifice to meet us in our need. Jesus' love was the love that poured out blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and then poured out blood on the cross. That's the love that Peter is pointing towards. This is not about affection. This is about meeting a real life-threatening need. It's the kind of love that shows up when things are on the line. So who do you know that has a need like that? Who in your life is under fire? Who do you know that is struggling financially or emotionally or spiritually? That are on the brink? Whose marriage is on the edge? Who is a widow in desperate need? Who do you know that is a single parent trying to raise a couple of kids on their own? Who do you know that is struggling in the midst of tragedy? Who do you know that is facing the death of a spouse? Who do you know that is in the hospital or shut in and lonely at home and unable to get out? Who do you know that is under the fiery trial that doesn't need a Hallmark card but needs ectinous love? That stretches out to the limit to meet them. Remember the words of John in application. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How many people in my own world, this is me talking personally, how many people in my own world are at a desperate level, needing someone to show them love, and I get busy, so busy with my own life at times that I overlook them? It's bad. Like, I I know it. I see it in my own life. It happens, right? I don't always love them and stretch Ectinose love out to the limit and as your leadership myself as your pastor and Elena and Wendy and Nick we pour a lot of into a lot of different lives okay we reach a lot of different families and we do a lot of things to pour out into this church but the church is about more than what the leaders do we only do it hopefully to set an example to teach a little bit about what this ectinous love is, even as we fail to live it out perfectly. We are only trying to set an example in a pattern for others to follow. The church is about the whole body of Christ, the whole family of believers loving each other fervently. We are all to have ectinous love for each other. It's not just about a few leaders or a few heroes of love. This is normal Christian love to stretch out to reach each other. So as a whole church, we have to ask each of ourselves individually, who do we know that has a need and what can I do about it? A financial need, an emotional need, someone caught in substance abuse, an illness, whatever. How does our love stretch out sacrificially to those people? Not from duty or not feeling guilty because I shook my finger at you, right? That's not what I'm asking. Where does this love come from? It's not out of duty. It's not out of guilt because you heard a sermon on Sunday morning. Our love isn't compelled by duty. Look what Peter says. He says, Show sincere mutual love. Let's keep going. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart or from the heart. It's love from the heart, love motivated by a transformed heart. Paul says it this way in First Timothy. He says to his protege, his, his person that he's teaching, this young Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart. Well, that sounds just like Peter. <laughs> a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our teaching and of Paul's example and Timothy's example and Jesus' example and Peter's example, the aim of the teaching is to create love that comes from a pure heart and a sincere faith. And you see how Peter and James and John and Paul, they all agree together with this with Jesus. They're all saying the same thing. There's no disagreement between James and Paul. No disagreement between Peter and John. It's all one gospel. The good news of a new love that you have made possible by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that new love poured into us by God. And that new love born into us from the imperishable seed of the Holy Spirit. And it's made possible by this work of Jesus and, in our, and it's made possible in our, her, our hearts by our faith in that work of Jesus. And so I'll just say that you guys are doing it, okay? So I'm just going to say right now, here's the encouraging part, you guys are showing it. I'm not preaching this sermon because I feel that Lakeside is absent of love. I'm not preaching this because I think you guys are failing, but because, as the Apostle Paul says, the aim of our instruction or the aim of my instruction is love, to spur on more love, ectinous love that stretches to the limit, to learn to love even more than what we love now. I want for you what I want for myself. I want for this church at Lakeside what I want for myself to be able to stretch farther in my love. So let's examine where each of us are at in our own obedience of this. And if we're lacking, then we can lean into this instruction. If you look at your own heart and your own life and you say, yeah, my love is maybe not stretching as far as it could. In fact, maybe I'm keeping it to myself. Then you can lean into this teaching. You can read 1 Peter. Read it like five times, only five, five chapters long. You, you can read it two or three times a day. Just lean into this teaching and purify your heart by instruction. Because that's how we get that pure heart, just quickly in conclusion. How do we get that pure heart? Well, you lean into the Word of God. You lean into this instruction that Peter is giving, or Paul is giving to Timothy and Peter is giving to us. Peter says that we get it from our salvation and Paul says that he and Timothy are teaching with an aim to bring this love about. We get the Holy Spirit to enable it and to teach it and we get the Word of God to reinforce it. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying and he says this. He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Where do we get this sanctification or where do we get this purity? Sanctification is just a fancy Christian word for purity (laughs) in a way, setting apart. So when it says sanctify, just imagine purity, right? Sanctify them or purify them in the truth and your word is truth. Or if you look at what Peter's teaching, Peter follows up his section on love by saying... For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. It's all temporary. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. And so he says, Because you have this word and it's been proclaimed to you, the natural conclusion is Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So get rid of all evil, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, and yearn like newborn infants for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up to salvation. Look at that. We have this word proclaimed to us. But Peter also acknowledges that we have this capacity not to love. He knows. He's writing to these Christians, and he knows they have this capacity for deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He says, I want you to have this ectinous love. I want you to have this stretching love, but I am fully aware that deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and all kinds of evil, you're still possible to do that too. That's still possible. And so how do we exchange evil for love? How do we get this love? This enduring word that's been proclaimed to us. And so lean into the teaching. Lean into 1 Peter. Lean into the Word of God. Have it open in front of you. Be reading it. Be marking it. Be putting notes in the margin about what's going on in the text. Right? We have this ability to love, but we have to keep practicing it, and we have to put away or cease our habits of not loving. And I could say more here about these ways that Peter notices we fail to love each other. There's a whole sermon right there just in those two verses, but I don't have time for that. But... But, but one by one we've been guilty of all this evil and Peter says you're, you have this word that's proclaimed to you and so you need to yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that you can grow up into this salvation that you have. Our love has to come from a pure heart. If our hearts aren't pure, it's really hard to love, right? So if you're not finding much love and you can't get that ectinose-stretching love, then start searching your heart for these things. Start searching for deceit or for envy, or for slander, or for malice. You can't love with a heart like that. So let the word of God wash that stuff out of your heart by being in the word of God. Let it teach you and instruct you how to love. And we reinforce this love by the word of God. Keep reading it, keep loving it, set your hearts on it, set your minds on it. It is pure spiritual milk for your growth. So as a church, let's put that into practice. Let's drop the things of the flesh that wither and die and let's grab hold of the word of God that endures and is imperishable and let's love like Peter calls us to love one another. A love of God that is poured out into our hearts or a love that is from the seed of God. We take on the nature of God with this love. It is an ectinous love. Remember that word, ectinous love. It is love that stretches to the limit. That is the love that Peter calls for us to practice amongst ourselves, amongst each other. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for Peter and for Mark, I think, who was doing a lot of his writing. (laughs) And wow, your Holy Spirit just poured out so much truth to them. So Father, open our hearts and expand our minds and help us get our whole being around this idea of love that is poured into our hearts by You because of the amazing transformative work that is done by Your Holy Spirit through what Jesus did on the cross to die for our sins, to give us the gift of eternal life. If we will simply turn our hearts and our minds and give up our evil and give up our muttering and slander and envy and disgruntledness and rebellion, if we lay down all of that to pick up Jesus, you'll give us this ectinose love. And we'll love like we've never been able to love before. Father God, that's what we pray for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.